It's not the 8-bit Nintendo version that we got from Dan. I, I, I guess the first thing I need to confess is that I did not dress appropriately. I should have had the board shorts and flip-flops on. Um, I do appreciate what uh, Dan Parkins brought up, though, about uh, the church from China. Now, their primary concern, rather than being slaves to the Chinese government, but about being slaves to sin. And uh, sin is a disease, and there's a cure, the disease of the souls, and there's a cure of souls, which is confession. And I, I have to realize with a Presbyterian audience, I'm not talking about the confession of faith. I'm talking about confessing your sins today. Um, and we heard, you know, from last week, Pastor Paul talked about how the confession of sin is part of our liturgy, and that's kind of rare. Whenever I go to a church, typical American church, they generally don't have that part as their liturgy. They have like some uh, singing time, and then there's a message. And I kind of feel like I got away too easy on a Sunday when that happens. I don't know, that's kind of what I'm used to, confessing my sins on Sunday. When I don't have to do that, I feel like I'm like, got an easy Sunday. Um, and I mean, you know, most people, they have a, a pure heart, and they want to um, express the gospel. But normally when I hear the gospel, it's more at a sense of, uh, you know, God loves you, and... Um, wants you to invite him into your heart, uh, but the, the, the issue there is that the, the sins that cause a separation between me and God in the first place aren't factored into that message. They're not mentioned. Um, so I appreciate how uh, in our membership vows, we specifically ask about you and your sin, like do you abhor it? We expect you as a Christian to, to do that. Uh, I love John's writing. He's very... Um, succinct. And in 1 John, he says that if we tell ourselves that we don't have a sin, we're lying to ourselves. So we've all sinned, and what is it that he tells us to do? 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how can we understand the depths of our hearts and all the hidden sins that we cannot even possibly know about? If we are even to spend the day, our lifetime, confessing what we do know, we wouldn't finish. But Lord, this is how you have ordained our relationship with you. So Lord, let us make good on our confessions. Teach us how to confess, Lord. Teach us the way to have greater peace with you and with each other through this, Lord. And I pray also for our children um, that we would all pay attention uh, to what you have to say on this extremely important topic. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have six children, and um, it tends to generate a lot of trash in the house. Uh, that's just natural. We generate trash. We're people. We're eight people. And uh, we have chore time and whatnot, so certain kids are assigned chores, you know, Depending on the month, we have a whole system. Sometimes they're paired up. It gets complicated, but we figure it out. But sometimes chores just don't get done by the kids. I don't know if any parents have experienced that. Uh, but when the trash doesn't get out or, like, you know, you don't put the can out on trash day, it piles up, and it gets kind of disgusting, and bugs and stuff like to make their home. And it gets a bigger and bigger mess. And sin as a disease kind of has that, that sort of analogy, um, and I want to kind of show you three things, and I love trinities because they're all over Scripture, 
Three things that God teaches us throughout his word about how to clean up that trash, how to make right when we sin. The first one is confession. And this is really a word that means to agree. And what you're agreeing with is that you've sinned and you acknowledge that. God already knows that you've sinned. But the question is, are you going to admit? It's not, God doesn't wonder about what you did. He knows exactly what you did. Are you going to own up to it? A second thing is repentance. You have to turn away from sin. You don't want to be like a dog that returns to his own vomit. Proverbs 26.11, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And that's, that's kind of profound. I own a cat, so I don't have to deal with this dog. People have to deal with this, I guess. Um, but I have seen a dog do this, and um, I mean, they're just very fascinated by it. They go into it. Um, and so a fool kind of does that. It's sort of a, a perverse, nonsensical thing to do. But that's our human nature to do that. Repentance is to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That is vomit. I'm leaving. Don't want the vomit. <laughs> I know. This should be obvious. Uh, and then restitution. This is one that often is forget, forgotten. You have to go and make it right. There are consequences to sin. And there's a way to, in some cases, repair this is a very important concept, actually, and central to the gospel, which we'll see a little bit later. Uh, this is not what you want to do. This goes back to Adam in the garden. This is the easiest thing to talk about and the very hardest thing for any one of us to do is to confess our sins. Trust me, I don't want to confess my sins. My kids don't want to confess anything. There's a lot of lack of confession going on. So a true confession has three, these three things. And if you notice, there's, there's word, thought, and deed. And that's when, when you, I, the, confession also, the confession of faith talks about how when we do something right, it has to be the right thing in the right way for the right reason. So there's, there is the uh, confession in word, admitting it. There's changing your thoughts, which is the repenting. And then there's also uh, changing your deeds, which is the restitution part of it. Um, and when those three are there, which we'll see in Scripture, forgiveness always follows, it must follow, we're commanded to forgive one another. So in the difficulty of confessing, there is the assurance of forgiveness. We even call that in our literature, liturgy, the assurance of forgiveness. Uh, so something that is so bad can turn into a blessing when it's forgiven. But when it's not forgiven, it becomes very oppressive. Bible's very clear on that. We think that it's okay that we'll get away with it. But here's what David has to say about it. When I kept silent, Psalm 32, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. So if you want premature aging, not confessing is the way to do it. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Like living underneath a bronze sky, right? There's just no, no release. I like the way John Calvin puts this. God is a physician, so let us show him our wounds and sores. It's kind of like surgery without anesthesia. It's extremely painful. We don't want to do it, but we have to do it. Um, you need to be fixed. Let's look at some examples now in Scripture and with each one of these, we'll see specific examples for, for confession, repentance, and restitution. So let's go back 
uh, first of all, to King David, perhaps the most famous example of confession. Um, David was a king of Israel many centuries ago, and it was a warm spring day, similar to days we've now been finally having today. And he was supposed to be doing his king thing and fighting some wars. He decides to stay home. He doesn't have Minecraft at that time, so he doesn't play Minecraft, but he notices a beautiful woman across the way. Now, if you're not up to speed on David's history, he's already married to multiple women. And the beautiful woman he notices is married to one of David's most faithful soldiers, and not even an Israelite. And David is also very well aware of the commandments. He's well aware of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Good. And the tenth commandment, his neighbor's wife, right? Specifically, by the way, that one. And he's also aware of the penalty for taking another man's wife. Leviticus 20.10. You should just know that, right? It's death. Um, Nevertheless, he invites her over. She spends the night with him, and she becomes pregnant. Soon afterwards, her husband, Uriah, returns from the battle David should have been fighting in. You see where this is going, right? He unsuccessfully tries to have Uriah spend the night with his wife, but Uriah, the loyal Hittite, refuses. The battle's not over. Uriah, being a loyal soldier, doesn't want to dishonor this king by going home and acting like the battle's over. He still has his duty. So this shame is just building up inside and side. David's thinking, I'll start innocuously and just have him go home, but it's starting to snowball. He now gets desperate to keep the secret, and he tells the captain of the army before they return to battle to misplace Uriah so that he will die for sure. Now, David is the commander-in-chief of the army. Imagine the trust that's put into him. I mean, not commander of Israel. Imagine the trust in his advice of how to run the battle. He's the warrior king, and he plops Uriah specifically in the wrong place. A lot of trash now has built up in the kitchen. And you know, because you can see behind the scenes, because you're watching, you're not in it. The wicked man flees when no one pursues, as the Proverbs say. So now, not only has David broken the seventh and tenth commandments, he's now broken the sixth one by murder and the ninth one by bearing false witness about what the right thing to do would be in battle. And still, nobody is calling him on it. He's going to get away with it, huh? Well, God sends a prophet named Nathan. He tells a little story about a man who owns several sheep. He decides to steal another man's only sheep and have that for a feast. David, in his indignation, he's a man of the word of God. He knows this is wrong. He says, that man deserves death. Should pay back fourfold. Nathan boldly retorts to the king's face, you're that man. So now begins this public, shameful unraveling of David's corruption. And he begins his confession very simply, I've sinned. Well, there are consequences. His child with Bathsheba is ill. David fasts and prays continuously, lying on the floor without moving, begging God to save the child but the newborn dies after a week. 
By God's grace and for the future birth of Christ alone, David himself is not punished by God with death. He deserves death. And it's my humble opinion, I suppose, that he would have preferred death, given the way his life was about to go for the rest of his life, based off of this sin. He later writes in Psalm 51, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin that's always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. The important aspect about David's confession here, he comes forth, he wants to acknowledge all of his sins, and not only does he acknowledge that, he also does not question God's law or his judgment at all. He simply confesses his disobedience to God, and he says to God alone that he has sinned. And then he pleads for the Holy Spirit to remain with him and give him a clean heart. And you may notice that nowhere in here does he ask that there be no consequence. He sees God as just when he judges, and so God's consequences for our sins he sees as just. And it's important to note, though, the difference here between consequences and forgiveness. You can be forgiven and still have to deal with what happened, right? I mean, when you, if you murder somebody, they're gone. There's consequences there, right? That's probably the most obvious, right? A destruction of a marriage also has consequences that cannot be avoided. It has a ripple effect down the generation. Everyone knows the pain of divorce, right? We've seen a lot of divorce the recent generations, and though David would live with the sin, or the consequences of his sin, the sword would never leave his house. His own son would want to take his life. He would not lose the forgiveness of the Lord. And he would be known forever as a man after God's own heart. And he would write incredible psalms under the immense distress, hiding in caves um, from his own family. So he writes this in Psalm 32. Uh, after the verses we read, this verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He knows God will do that. So it's important then to admit, just admit your sin without any qualification. Now looking at the cure of souls in thought, repentance, going now back earlier to Genesis. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and they were all sons of Jacob. Joseph, however, was not liked by his brothers. And he wasn't liked by his brothers because of the particular favor that God showed to him. God gave him dreams, uh, which explicitly called out him as having particular favor. They didn't like that. Um, this is a real high case of sibling rivalry. Um, <laughs> I didn't get along with my siblings. I've seen kids not get along with each other. Uh, we can all sort of relate. Uh, but this is pretty severe. They decide that they want to kill him. But after a little more pragmatic discussion led by Judah, they decide, you know what, let's make a little money off of him. So they decide to sell him to a wandering band of merchants from Midian to get some profit. I don't even know who these guys are. I don't even know where he's going. But off he goes. They take his coat that his father made him, dip it in an animal's blood in order to create a false story to their father that Joseph has died. 
Obviously, Jacob is terribly grieved. Years later, it seems like they've gotten away with it. There's a famine in the area. Jacob sends 10 of his sons to go to Egypt to get food, but he keeps Joseph's only full-blooded brother, Benjamin, behind. Unbeknownst to anyone, Joseph's actually in charge in Egypt. He's the king's deputy. Nobody knows that. Joseph is not recognized by his brothers. We're not surprised by that. They dumped him off a long time ago. They didn't care about him, Uh, but he recognizes them. But now, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm Joseph. He's going to test the genuineness of their visit. And he demands that they leave and come back with Benjamin. Now see, during all this time, Joseph's brothers are, confe- are, are they're trying to assert to Joseph, they don't know who he is, that they're honest men. But Joseph knows that they were not honest men. They sold him. They wanted to kill him and hide it from their father. So Joseph decides to further test them by accusing their younger brother Benjamin, who has come, of theft and pronouncing a prison sentence upon him. So now, you know, they know their father was like, you better make sure you bring back Benjamin. I've lost Joseph already. If I don't have Benjamin, I'm going to die in grief. Now they're faced with a return trip to their father as the very clear and succinct reason of grieving their own father to death with the loss of another son. The only two children of his first love and deceased wife, Rachel, will now be gone. You understand what this is doing to a man? You understand the snowballing that has now come upon Joseph's brothers? Judah now says to Joseph, and I've taken pieces from Genesis 44 here, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. How will I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Do you understand what's going on here? Judah, his brother, is begging Joseph to take Judah's own life instead of Benjamin's. It's right at this point, Joseph can no longer hold back the emotions he's been holding back, and he bursts out into tears, and he welcomes his brothers back to him. Now, why was it at this point Joseph decides to do this? Why does he quit testing? Why doesn't he find joy in the fact that they're suffering under this? Why does he point the finger and say, I told you so? Remember, it's me, what you did to me? He didn't do any of that, did he? He sees something different now. Judah now proclaims that instead of trying to dispose of a brother's life, he is devoting himself. He is sacrificing his own freedom to restore a brother's life. You see the change now? So you may want to believe that you can ignore sins for days, weeks, or years. Joseph's brothers went a long time without telling their dad what happened. And they thought the secret would be buried forever. But this guilt never left them. Judah says it. God has revealed the iniquity of your servants. We could not hide it anymore. And it kept them in a negative relationship and was slowly destroying them and snowballing until they finally confessed. And then they found love and forgiveness from their brother. 
whom they had tried to destroy. So you see the change of mind in Judah. When we repent, we turn away from sin as a viable option in our minds. Joseph forgives them and welcomes them as if nothing they had done remains against them. That's really profound and phenomenal. All right, let's look at restitution. Now we're going to spring forward to the New Testament. We're going to look at Luke. 19.8 says this, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and um, there's some debate as to what this word translated defraud means. It's kind of an odd thing in Greek. It refers to a, a specific thing that happened in history about um, tattletailing on fig stealers or something like that. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that he likely not only has stolen, stolen wealth through a false premise of taxation, that was his job, he has an authority figure, it's easy for him to abuse that authority, um, but more than likely he has used the money and he has uh, uh, made it unrecoverable. It's not just sitting in his wallet and he can give it back. So the, the fourfold reference goes back to Exodus, to the law. Exodus 22.1 says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and he slaughters it or settles, sells it, see, it's gone, right? Sheep's dead, I sold it, can't get it back. He'll restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Zacchaeus is also expressing a willing desire to give to the poor. See, he's, he's a changed heart now. And he's focused on lifting up victims at his own expense rather than lifting up himself at others' expense. And that, that's sort of the, that's really a, a foundational concept found in the judgments of God in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. You'll notice that what a criminal intended to do to a victim is reversed. And Zacchaeus now has this heart. Um, you know, I heard it once said by a pastor who was talking about this verse that Zacchaeus was just kind of being excessive. You know, oh, he just wants to, he just made up a number, so oh, I'm going to pay back four because that's just, I'm just really zealous and really excited about, about you, Jesus. And I, you know, I appreciate that a little bit, but I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think it's okay to be overboard. I think Zacchaeus is expressing that he wants to do what God has prescribed, and I think there's a very gospel-centered message there. Um, the law, as... Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy, is in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you, when you look at the law, you need to see Christ and that restoration in there. And you know, we're, we're very um, similar to Cain. And uh, we like to complain about our punishments. You guys remember Cain killed his brother Abel. And uh, when God pronounced the punishment, he complained about it. And I don't think he had in mind his brother whom he killed when he complained, and I don't think he had in mind his parents who've now lost a son. Uh, we don't tend to think about that when we think about criminal justice, but justice, according to God, is by this reversal. Um, well, the bottom line is, John says, if we have, say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So when you cover your own sins... 
you realize that you're not fooling God. He knows what they are. He can see them. And what we've also seen is that you don't really fool other people for too long. God will reveal it. So then you're left with the fact that you're only lying to yourself by saying you have no sin, and that's kind of a dumb thing to do. I generally don't like to lie to myself. I realized um, back when I was kind of confronted with, with uh, when I was in college and I, was, um, I would say that I was a Christian, um, but I, I didn't really read the Bible or anything like that. It was kind of a convenient thing to say when topics got serious and you weren't just partying. It was kind of, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian and I kind of, you know, I have a restraint. When I, I'm bogus. Um, but... Um, <laughs> um, well, I kind of got lost in the story there. I don't even know where I was. But um, in any event, um, well, yeah, I, re- I realized that I was, li- like, I was confronted with something from Scripture. Um, it was actually my future wife pointing out to me that drunkenness was something forbidden in the Bible. And I was like, oh, wow, really? Where's that? Named it chapter and verse. And I was like, huh, well, I can either now continue to lie to myself that I'm a Christian or I should actually pay attention to this Bible. Uh, so I decided not to lie to myself. <laughs> but John continues. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Uh, and, and Jesus graciously says to the public around, everyone's watching this. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, right? He's a short guy, and he's got to get up there to see Jesus. He's, there's always a crowd wherever Jesus was, guaranteed. He says to everyone, after Zacchaeus says his statement, that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is making right. He's not just confessing, and he's not just changing heart. He's also making right with his victims. So you see, it's not only our... Um, well, with all those three things, it's not only our option, but our duty to forgive one another. Paul says in Colossians 3.13, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Well, trust me, it says it there. I did have a slide. (laughs) If you have something to confess, we know it's hard. Take comfort that you will be forgiven. Even if you're not forgiven or, you know, the person you're confessing to is kind of upset or doesn't want to, uh, you know, has got to let some steam off or whatever, uh, God will forgive you. Nevertheless, though, there is an issue with confession itself. It's uh, very complicated, right? How does one confess? Well, there's a lot of ways that we don't confess. Uh, and I, it's funny, my wife and I were talking about this uh, very subject this morning, and I, I felt like I could always just keep adding to this message um, about how we don't confess. Um, but you may notice that, like, some things will be called true confessions, or people get excited that a celebrity is confessing now, and you kind of feel like, you know, it doesn't really feel like he's really confessing, Um, and you know what, when you have it in your heart, that's probably true, it's not really a confession. Maybe you yourself have tried to get out of a situation without admitting it. There's always someone you know who's done that, right? Not you. Well, we don't want to turn back from the sin we're caught in. We don't want to attempt to even make it right. But we really don't even want to tell the full truth of what we did. So here are some tactics for avoiding confession. If you want to remain 
with God's hand heavy upon you, here's what you do. (laughs) Uh, The first offense is to redefine what you did. Well, um, you know, I wasn't really complaining about that driver. I'm just trying to get somewhere. Okay. Wasn't really road rage. Just a good earnest effort to move faster. (laughs) Um, Another tactic is to confess someone else's sin to cover up yours. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to feel some things in the house today, aren't we? Adam's most famous for this. Well, God, it was the woman you gave me. I mean, he was singing a song, not a chapter earlier, right? You bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and I will call you woman. And it was just the most romantic thing. Now it's like, what you gave me? Gee... I mean, that's, that is, you know, that's, that's part of the original sin. We are always going to have that. We're always going to be qualifying. And I noticed that, and I'm not trying to pick on my kids. All kids do this. All kids will say, but he, but she. Right? I mean, that's, that's just what you hear. Um, here's a little more grown-up way, though, of changing it. Um, Confess that guilt is something just kind of entirely made up, or maybe like a biological trait. Now, it sounds kind of dumb, right? We're Christians. We understand this is not the case. But look how easy it is to say this. That's just how I am. Boy, I'm a grumpy old codger, aren't I? God made me this way. Or if you want to get really liberal, you know, guilt is a social thing. It's a construct. It's really part of our, our Western mentality. Uh... <laughs> Uh, here's a, another good one that I kind of like to, um, I've, you know, I, I guess this has been pointed out. To, and, you know, and I, I have to admit, I am guilty. I mean, I'm guilty of all these things. But you confess really just to brag, right? Or maybe you just want to get something off your chest. This is sort of the celebrity confessions. Like, oh, yeah, I got to admit, you know, man, when I was in college, I was such a big drinker. Whew, some parties. It's not really a confession, right? You're kind of proud of what you did, right? And not only that, but you're, you're thinking like you didn't do it in the moment, right? This is always later when there's not really a consequence. You're like, yeah, back in the day I did blah, 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 blah. You didn't admit to it back in the day, did you, when there would have been trouble? Now everyone's 50 and you're sitting around talking about the good old days. Oh, yeah, you know, I did that, whatever. That's not a confession. Uh, another um, little trick to keep up your sleeve is to kind of keep it vague or broad or maybe just partial. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did some stuff here and there. I, I might have done that, and if I did, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a good one, too. If I did offend, then I do feel I'm sorry. Um, you know, or, or, or maybe just not kind of telling the whole story, bits and pieces, right? Yeah, you know, I, I was there. And then... You know, the investigator has to kind of prod, okay, you were there. Did you go along with it? Did you steal two? How many did you steal? Oh, you went back and stole more. Okay. Um, and then finally, and if you have more ideas, please feel free to share them during Q&A. I'd love to uh, update my flashcards. <laughs> Confess angrily. Okay, fine, I did it. What do you want? Hmm. Well, we've been pushed to admit 
And, and why would you do that angrily, right? You're like, oh, okay, fine, I stole. What, what do you want? Well, we kind of want the, to end, right? We're kind of shutting down the other person so that we don't have to go into the other steps here, which would be repentance and restitution. We don't want to turn from sin, and we certainly don't want to make it right. It's that community service, right? Now you've got to go in public and do something. We don't want to do that. We just want to kind of shut it down and be done. Sometimes it's cheap to throw forth the words. All right, fine, I'll admit it. Whatever. Just get off my back. The thoughts and the deeds remain unchanged. And that's what we should be concerned about with each other. We should be concerned about a whole heart and mind transformation. And I have to say this. um, I suppose this was more true when our kids were younger. Um, But, you know, when they're little, it's kind of cute when they avoid their confession. We had... (laughs) We had a, a, an issue uh, growing up. One of our kids, I won't name names, um, and I'll, I'll try to avoid the use of specific pronouns, right? Because if I say he or she, you're like, oh, that narrows it down to three. <laughs> uh, none, of, none of the kids are at the age where this happened, okay? So, but um, we had a problem with stealing candy in the middle of the night, and I think this was around Halloween, um, and it wasn't me stealing candy corn in the night. Um, stealing candy in the middle of the night, and then we would ask about it, and in the cutest way, the kids would ask, uh, the kid would ask, you know, but why are you asking me? Why are you asking me? (laughs) It's really adorable, right? But it's completely inappropriate. (laughs) I'm asking you because you're my parent, (laughs) and you need to confess and learn that you can't do this. So when we behave in these ways, um, Jesus calls us, And I quote, whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, right? We're trying to put up this facade that we have confessed or we've done or we don't need to confess, but inside that rot, that trash, that snowball, that heavy hand continues. We're not actually confessing and we're not actually truly changed. So I chose the title of this sermon, The Cure of Souls. Um, I did steal it from Rush Juni's book of the same name, which is about confession. And he notes this, that confession is basic to prayer. And I thought that was interesting. I don't know if you ever thought about that, about how confession is related to prayer. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's probably the most explicit combination of confession with prayer. Right? You're confessing with your mouth. So it's not just, not just believing in your heart that God has saved you, but you're confessing. Real confession, then, has to be of Christ. David recognized this because he said, Against you only, God, have I sinned. And so he's recognizing in his confession that this is not just a social construct. This is not just something to do in the moment to get out of it. I've actually, I actually have to acknowledge that Christ is king and that I have broken his law. And now I need to turn to him in word, thought, and deed. Try to imagine, you know, it's, it's a broken analogy, but try to imagine an actual king, right? You've actually offended the king of the land, you know, it's like, oh, no. God, or David is recognizing that. 
I notice a, a, a parallel with the way Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? Another trinity. Um, and I, I love, I always love the trinity, but after having Pastor McGraw at family camp just kind of go all out on the trinity, it was really awesome. Uh, you should listen to one of his talks. He's, it was great. Uh, now I see the trinity everywhere, and we should see the trinity everywhere. Um, so when we are confessing, we need to speak the truth. Specifically say how you disobeyed God. Nothing vague. It needs to be particular. You need to actually change your way. Repent and turn from the sinful behavior. The truth and the way. And then you need to, instead of taking life, you need to give life. You need to restore and pay whatever is required to your offended brother. And um, when we sin, so we are, in a sense not doing these three things. And so, in a sense, we're denying Christ. And again, it's that whole fooling yourself again, which doesn't make sense. And you wouldn't actually actively think of doing that, but you do do this innately. Instead of believing what Paul says, that the wages of sin is death, like nobody in the stories, where like David's not thinking about that. The brothers aren't thinking about that. We believe that we have now gained some form of freedom or maybe some knowledge from sin, just like Eve in the garden, just like, well, that fruit looks good, and I'd be good for my body, and I might learn a few things, so I think I'm going to go ahead and go for it. That's a lie. Sin does not produce that, and we think that it will produce something good, but it doesn't. It is a lie. And lies look like the truth, otherwise we wouldn't believe them. So you see, when we really confess our sins, we're actually giving kind of a true confession of faith in Christ. And this is um, important because Jesus tells us to leave the altar and go make right with our brother before we come back. He tells us, pause the prayer and go and deal with your offended brother. You see how it's basic to your worship. He says it here in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, right there, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I mean, have you ever been in the grocery store line, and you're like, oh, I forgot forgot 2% milk. Can I just leave this here and go back and get it? And it's like, okay, well, okay, they got to move your stuff out of the way and have the next person, you know, it's kind of embarrassing and whatnot. Jesus is saying, do all that. In the middle of worship, everyone's going to see you, oh, he's leaving his gift. He's got to go and do something. No matter what it takes, go and be reconciled to your brother, even if it's at the very last minute, then come back and offer your gift. Well, we know all the, all the law of Scripture hangs on two commandments. Scripture says, a lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Three things there. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So when we sin, we break both of these laws. We're not loving the Lord our God, and we're not loving our neighbor. Our relationships with both God and people are damaged, and we saw that in all of the examples that we saw in Scripture. But through confession and repentance and restitution, we've learned how to restore ourselves to our brother and be forgiven. 
And Jesus makes it clear that we are to forgive, even if it's 70 times 7 times that we have to forgive someone. And I've, I've heard my kids say this, like, oh, you know, how many, how many times? It's like, it's like they, they always do that, right? Ah, oh, they always do this, they always do this, they always do this. Like, well, we're always going to forgive, we're always going to forgive, we're always going to forgive. But if confession is really a, procl- a proclamation of faith in Christ, then our confession is really a statement to God first. And we try to avoid that. If we can avoid that, we can avoid a true confession. And that's why it's important that David says, to you only have I sinned. It's first a statement to God and then a statement to our neighbor second. If your confession is not primarily to God, then it is not really genuine. And I, I've been reading through Jeremiah, and I, I couldn't, it's not in the notes, but I couldn't overlook this passage in Jeremiah 23. God says this, Am I a God near at hand? says the Lord, and not a God far off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. And I, that really stuck with me, right? Because we think God's not going to see it. Or we, we don't even like actively think that. We just kind of operate that way. You know what I'm saying? We just think we... I have, um, you know, my mom lives in Texas, and uh, I moved to California back in 1998. So I don't see my mom very often. And because of that, I don't really think of her as nearby. I mean, she's not nearby, but she's really not nearby, right? Somebody who comes often to my house, I kind of see as nearby. With God, we never see him. It's not like Jesus Christ in bodily form walks amongst, oh, yeah, that's right, you're here. I almost forgot. So our tendency is to operate so easily as if God is not around. Even though everything testifies to his glory and beauty, we operate this way. But there's actually no hiding from him. He fills heaven and earth. So, if you do affirm that Christ is Lord, and you do plead to Christ as Savior, he is faithful to forgive you and restore you fully to God. See, there's this restitution part. You may confess your sins and you may turn from them, but how do you pay for them? Sin is, in a sense, robbing from God, but it's the robbing of an entire life. It's a, it's, a, it's a robbing of um, your own ethical choices that you make throughout your life, but you yourself, as flesh and blood, can't inherit the kingdom of God. And in, you, you've basically robbed of a creation. And so your blood is demanded. But there is one who has given his blood instead of yours. You can't do anything for your sins to appease God. And as it says in Scripture, we will surely die. But he has the only restitution needed by you, the most valuable thing in the universe. And it's a dying, not just a physical death, but dying mentally. That that heavy hand, that cognitive dissonance, that insanity that will grow and grow. And you will become insane. Sin does cause people to grow literally insane. The only possible payment for your salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ. So now... We are left with doing some introspection. What is it that's keeping you from confessing? Is it embarrassing? It certainly is embarrassing to admit sin. Tell your parents that you've done something. It puts you, makes you vulnerable. Uh, maybe awkwardness, particularly in a marriage. Is it going to be awkward to admit something to your wife or your husband? Uh, is there going to be shame? 
if people find out in church what you're struggling with. Or maybe you've convinced yourself that you're in too deep. I'm just too addicted. There's too much garbage. I can't clean it up. I'm just going to have to leave it. There's so much effort involved here. You don't even know the beginning of it, Mr. Davies. I don't even know where to begin. Well, the good news is, confession itself doesn't save you. But you can't expect God to forgive you if you do not confess. Since God is faithful to forgive, He is also faithful to set you free. You know, I really wanted to do a message on liberty. I mean, we had the church from, from uh, China, you know, come here, and we have uh, Independence Day and whatnot. But I really love how John puts it in chapter 8 that it's really, whoever, it's, it's really slavery to sin that is the problem. And um, Jesus, not only is he faithful to forgive your sins, but he's also faithful to free you from slavery to sin, no matter the consequences. So even though there's no sin that's too small, that is overlooked, and that's another way of getting around confession, actually, is to say, well, this is a small thing, no big deal. Didn't think it was, you know, there's, there's always many aspects around what we do. Even, if, even choosing what breakfast cereal you had today was an ethical decision. How much sugar was in it? Were you diabetic? Was that a good choice? Right? You can kind of go through this line of thinking, right? Nothing is too small that it's overlooked by the Lord, but there's also no sin that's too great that he does not forgive. Proverbs 28.13 puts it very succinctly. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf for our sins, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for this great mercy of confession to where we can agree with you, where our minds are renewed to be like you, and where we can repair and restore the damage because you are a great God of restoration. You want to redeem uh, the world. You so love the world that you sent your only son um, to die for our sins, Lord. And so we, we praise you, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that each one of us, young, middle, and old, would take to heart how clear it is that we need to make a regular practice of confession, Lord, um, and bring it to prayer always, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.